Um, okay, we're always trying to say uh, we hope that you find RUF uh, to be a safe place, no matter what your background, no matter what you believe. There are seats up here, too, by the way. Um, and I hope you feel like uh, we want you to be here, because you are. You're wanted. Um, and, but what we're doing every week of the fall semester is we are walking through the book of Revelation, and we're seeing how Revelation, far from its agenda to ramp up anxiety and fear and enhance confusion, it's actually given to a group of churches and people in 96 AD who are confused, who are paralyzed by fear because they follow this dead, resurrected, ascended Jesus, but their life isn't turning out like they thought it was. Like they are being beheaded and persecuted and economically becoming poor. And so they are, they are extremely confused and in pain. And Revelation comes to that first century church and to us and it says this. Things are not as they seem. There is more going on than the unaided senses can comprehend. And Revelation pulls back the curtain and lets you see the realm behind this realm, the spiritual world. Which I realize we think is less real than the physical but it's just as real, if not more real, than this world. And it say, I want you to see that. And tonight, we get to see the first time the curtain pulled back, if you will. And before we read, I want you to think about, I think, the way a lot of our dreams work. Right? On the one hand, dreams kind of seem crazy when you look back on them, right? For instance, I, I've had several dreams and kind of like this and... Some of you have had to have similar experiences like this, where I, I walk into Dorman on, on a Thursday night for RUF, and it's, it's like three minutes before it's going to start, right? And the auditorium's full, and all of a sudden, I, like, I can't find my sermon notes, right? And so panic sets in, and I start looking around the auditorium, and there are, like, there's some familiar faces, like some of you are there, you know, and, but also, like, my high school teacher is there, and like my, you know, my best childhood friend, and like Tom Hanks is there, right? And like, but like none of that seems weird at the at the moment, right? And then so I, I like sprint out this back door, hoping no one notices. And instead of it being a parking lot, right? It's like it's like my high school basketball gym, right? And my and the coach is looking at me, and, and I realize I'm late for the game, and and so so I run by him, panicking, and I and I run into the locker room and. And there's Yoda, right? And he says, uh, you know, like, uh, your notes are gone, aren't they? You know, or something like that. But I'm looking for my notes in the locker room and I find them. And then you wake up, right? It's something like that. Or, you know, you, you forgot to wear your pants or, or you're, you, you're, like, it is something like that. And, and the farther you look back at the, at the dream, the images are bizarre. And they become more bizarre, even though they seemed normal at the time. But what happens is this. Even though the images weren't pictorially precise, you got the feeling and the impression you were supposed to get. Like you felt the panic and the anxiety that that dream was about. And it moved you, right? And we're about to read, now this isn't a dream, okay? This is a true account of the Apostle John while he's in exile on the island of Patmos it's real, but it works the same way. We're going to read about like Jesus with the sword coming out of his mouth. I can't tell you how that looks. And I don't think it's supposed to be pictorially precise. I don't think that's the point. But I can tell you how it's supposed to make you feel. And that's what John is going after. 
And so this is something given to John and the churches and us who are fearful, confused, and doubting. And it says, things are not as they seem. Look at Jesus. And this picture, this reality communicated to them was exactly what they needed to captivate their imaginations, to move them, to change them, and comfort and bless them. And may it do that uh, to us tonight. Let me pray for us. Lord, um, there is. There's a lot of revelation that uh, seems so bizarre. Uh, But it's your word, and it's living and active. And you have given it not for our confusion, but for our clarity. You've given it not to ramp up anxiety, but so that we can see Jesus. So, Lord, we do. We bring in fears. We bring in anxiety. We bring in a sadness. Um, uh, we bring in all kinds of, of stuff that we don't know what to do with. And would you meet us tonight with the power and the grace of Jesus? We ask this in your son's name, I pray. Amen. All right, Revelation 1. I'm actually going to start in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit of the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God, it stands forever. Okay, let's look at this um, vision, this picture of Jesus that John gets under two headings. Let's see the real Jesus. And let's see the real effect that he has. First, the real Jesus, verse 9 through 16. Right, we're told John is suffering on the island of Patmos probably because he refused to call Caesar Lord. He refused to do that. And so he, like many other Christians, has been exiled. And he's in the Spirit, right? And this is key because what you're going to see in, in Revelation is true. The Holy Spirit does not take you out of touch of reality. He brings you farther into reality. And so as, this, as he is in the Spirit, he hears behind him a loud voice like a trumpet telling him to write everything he sees. And he turns to see the voice, and what he sees is Jesus. This is the Jesus that he had walked with, that he had talked with, that he loved, that he knew loved him. But it's a completely different experience. Because when he turns to see the voice, what he sees is is, is in the midst of these lampstands, it says it's one like the Son of Man. And that phrase, Son of Man, is key. Because that's a phrase that Jesus used often to describe himself in the Gospels. But that phrase actually comes from Daniel, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. 
In Daniel 7, which is what Burns read for us, the prophet sees what's called the Ancient of Days, and he is clothed in white, his white hair like snow. His throne is fiery. And the vision ends by saying, Behold, with clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man to the Ancient of Days that was presented before him, and he was given dominion and glory and kingdom. In other words, what John is beholding is the fulfillment of what Daniel saw. This is the one, God himself, who is coming to judge his people and his people's enemies. And knowing that these images from the Old Testament, this is important. Because what John sees, it's not describing what Jesus looks like in his resurrected body, okay? He does not have a sword coming out of his mouth. This is describing what Jesus is like using prophetic images from the Old Testament. And that's important. It wants you to understand what Jesus is like. And so what's he like? What, what is Jesus like right now? And here's the takeaways from the picture. Instead of kind of trying to pick through every detail, I think it's just best to take the picture as a whole and see how it moves you. Look, he, right, he has a long robe, the symbol of royalty. He, his hair is purely white, White as snow, his, his eyes are flames of fire right? that can penetrate you to the deepest portions of who you are. His feet are refined bronze, strong, unshakable, have no impurities. His voice is like the roar of many waters. Think about that. Like if you ever stood by a waterfall, you're so close that it, you actually feel it as it rumbles you. That's what his voice does. His face is shining like the noonday sun in full strength. His only description of what it, what it was like to look at Jesus' face was to compare it to the sun completely unveiled. And so even without like pulling apart all the particulars, don't you feel it? That what Jesus is like, it's this image of raw, unmitigated power and white-hot searing purity. That encapsulates what John sees. Jesus is like power and purity that can only kind of be compared to the sun standing close to it. I don't know if you remember, uh, if, if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia or not, but there's this, there's this great scene from the silver chair where there's this interaction uh, from Jill, who is, who's kind of this little girl who finds herself in Narnia, and she's, she's dehydrated. And she hears, a, she hears a stream in the woods. And so she's so excited. And so she's heading towards that stream. And yet as she comes out of the woods, what she sees next to the stream is a lion. It's Aslan, right, who is kind of the Jesus figure in these stories. And so she halts because she's scared. And the lion in this deep voice says, if you are thirsty, you can come drink. But Jill, right, is frightened, as you would imagine, because now a lion is talking to her. And so she stands there. And, and Aslan says, are you, are you not thirsty? She says, I'm dying of thirst. Aslan says, then drink. And then she says, well, may I, could I, would you mind going away while I drink? And then it says this. The lion answered this by, by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. So then she says, will you promise not to do anything if I come? He says, I make no promise. 
She says, well, do you eat girls? He says, I've swallowed up girls and boys, women, men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. That's kind of it. That's the feeling you get here. When you look at the raw power and purity of the Son of God, the King of Kings, as he, that's how he is now. And I guess my first question is, like, do you know the real Jesus? This one. Because one thing he is not is comfortable and boring. He's anything but that. But we try so hard to tame him. We do. I do. We try to make him comfortable. We try to tame him and make him comfortable by, by compartmentalizing our life. So that, so that we think Jesus has nothing to say or to do with my weekend life or with my freshman year because this is what college is supposed to be like. Or we compartmentalize our life and, and keep Jesus comfortable by, by thinking he doesn't care how obsessed I am with my grades. Or, I think, here's the way we really do it. We make Jesus comfortable by just assuming that he dislikes and, irrita- and is irritated with all the same people that we are. Ann Lamont one time said, if if your God dislikes and is irritated with all the same people that you are, you've probably made God in your own image. Right? But that's what we do. We try to make him comfortable. And I think think we even tame him and try to dismiss him sometimes. And and hear me. This is a place you need to come with your questions and skepticism. I'm, I'm not belittling those. But we try to tame him by saying... Yeah, but look at the problem of evil. Therefore, I'll dismiss Jesus. Or, I can't make science go with Genesis 1 and 2, so I'll dismiss Jesus. I'm not saying those aren't good questions. But to dismiss this Jesus? Like, you can't do that. You have to start with Jesus and move out from there. He's reality itself. He's the point. And so Revelation is coming to people who are fearful and are confused and it says things are not as they seem. What you need to see most is the real Jesus. That's what you need to see. So the next question, right, is how do I know? How do I know if I've met the real Jesus? And I think you know by looking at the effects that Jesus has on John. What are the real effects? There's three things. What happens when John sees the real Jesus? First... John feels exposed, right? John doesn't run to Jesus. He falls at Jesus' feet, it says, as if dead. He goes limp. Why? Why is that the effect? Because in the apprehending the power of Jesus exposes our weakness, right? I know this is tragic, but but also... There is something amazing about a tornado, right? Where you see these buildings that are incredibly strong, yet when, it, when a tornado comes next to it, it collapses. And you realize compared to that thing, it's weak. And so his weakness gets exposed. But then, here's the big one, in the midst of Jesus' purity and holiness and righteousness, It exposes John's and it exposes our dirtiness and our sin and our unworthiness. Right? You've seen those commercials. 
where like it'll be something for like some kind of water filtration system and be like, you think the water that you drink is clean, right? And they'll like hold it up and it looks clean. And then they hold up like the glass of their purified water and all of a sudden, all of a sudden you realize, oh, my water is dirty. That's what's happening here. That when J- John sees Jesus in all his purity and in all his strength, he falls down as if dead because he's been exposed. Because the eyes of a burning fire have penetrated his being. And he's exposed. And when the two-edged sword comes out of Jesus' mouth, he knows he's dead. Because the sword is always a symbol of judgment. Always. And so as it's coming towards him and he's exposed in his sin and his weakness, he knows he's finished. And the first sign that you've actually met the real Jesus is when you finally realize that you're weak and you're hopeless and you're more dirty and sinful than you ever thought. Because his purity and his cleanness and his righteousness, it exposes us. But we don't like this. I I don't like this. We don't want to look at the real Jesus. We want to make Jesus comfortable because we want to feel good about ourselves. Like, isn't this why we just, like, we just treasure hearing bad news about people. Like, don't you secretly love that? Like, last night, I told Liza I had to go do some work. I had to work on the sermon. All right, and so what I did is I turned on my computer and do what I usually do. I went to ESPN for 15 minutes, uh, you know, to get my pre-work done. And, and what I did is I found, myself, I found myself reading this article about this football player at a prominent football, you know, prominent university who had broken, who had sprained his ankles By what he said, he was jumping from a balcony to save his nephew. But it was a complete lie. And they don't know exactly what happened, but there's obviously some some kind of scandal there. And I just loved it. Right? Like I kept reading. It made me feel so good about myself. Like look at that guy lying about how how he messed up his ankle. And that's what we do. We we don't want to look at Jesus. We want to make him comfortable when you look at something else because I just want to feel good about myself. And you can, all, you can always find somebody that's a bigger hypocrite than you. You can always find somebody that, that's, that's more drunk than you. You can find somebody that's more self-righteous than you. Always. But you know you've met the real Jesus when the horizontal comparison game is over. And you compare yourself to the shearing righteousness of Jesus and you're done. You're done. And I'm done. You know you've met Jesus when he realized things are not, not as they seem. I seemed like a good and decent person. But compared to the sheer righteousness of Jesus, I start realizing even my best stuff, even my best deeds, they're just riddled with selfishness. Like I can't even hold up my best day of obedience and say, here, accept this. It's so impure that Jesus' fire would consume it. Dwight Moody, the great missionary, one time said, my best prayer could send the whole world to hell. Isn't that kind of startling? But it's kind of true. A Christian is someone who's started repenting of his righteousness, not just his sins. Second of all, it actually comforts John. The second thing that happens, it's actually more startling than the first. As he sees the sword of judgment coming out of the mouth of Jesus, he, know he, can, he knows he can't stand. He knows he's going to die. He's being judged. 
But what happens? He feels a hand touching. Jesus' hands touching. What must that have felt like? Instead of dying and being consumed, the hand comforts him. And then, instead of words of condemnation coming out of Jesus' mouth and the sword, what comes out is words of grace and words of peace. He says, fear not. Fear not. This is the real Jesus. When you finally lose all hope in yourself, when you realize, I cannot even stand on any of my good stuff. When you realize I have nothing to offer Jesus, I can't leverage him to to make him like me with anything about myself. When you get there, here's the real Jesus. Instead of condemnation, what you'll find is grace. And we say, how can this be? How can the powerful and pure and just Jesus look at somebody like me who is broken and dirty and stuff people don't even know about? And how can he say, fear not? My searing judgment is nothing to fear. How? The next words tell you because he says, I I died and I'm alive again. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. What Jesus is saying is this. Yes. John, what you deserve and what Brian deserves and what you deserve. Because sin means I want to be away from Jesus. I want to be away from life itself. What I deserve is death. And because I've rebelled against the king himself, what I deserve is condemnation, eternal condemnation. Hell or Hades as it's called here. But Jesus, the holy, the pure one says, but I died. And he holds the the keys of Hades, the place of eternal condemnation. Here's the real Jesus. The strong, the powerful, the pure one is also so merciful. And so tender and so full of grace that 2,000 years ago, he takes on a body and he becomes weak. He becomes so weak that he's bound and he's blindfolded and he's dragged around and he's beaten and he's laughed at. And then he's nailed to a cross. And on the cross, the pure one, he becomes dirty. Because all of our sin, it covers him. And he's condemned. He is condemned And takes the full weight of God the Father's consuming wrath. And Hades takes a literal zip code 2,000 years ago on a cross. And because of that, Jesus can now look at you and he can look at me and he can say, the only thing that you should really fear, the only thing worth fearing, death and condemnation for your sin, you no longer need to fear if you know me. I've taken it away. I've made the full payment for your sin. Listen, if you're a Christian, you're going to hear me say this all semester. Revelation is not here to scare you and to ramp up your anxiety. It's here to comfort you and to bless you. He says, fear not. And these words of grace come from the real Jesus. The same powerful, pure Jesus that we saw. When he says... I have the keys of death and Hades in my hand. Realize this. On one level, what that means is, I say this gently, who cares if you still feel like you're enslaved to to sin? You're just not. You're not enslaved to the things that you've done. You may feel like it, but this Jesus holds the keys and says you're free. I know you feel like your sin and your shame and your mess are more powerful than Jesus. 
But that's making Jesus in your own image. The real Jesus, this one, his grace, his power, his forgiveness blows your sin away. And please see this. If you are overwhelmed with your sin tonight because your first two weeks or something that you hope your parents never find out, even after you're a Christian, the way to overcome your sin and your shame is not by beating yourself up. It's not by condemning yourself. It's not going to work. It's by the words of grace. It's by seeing the one who holds the, the keys of Hades in his hand and pronounces real forgiveness and real love. That's where repentance starts. Not in kind of working your way into it. So it exposes and then he comforts and then finally, the last way you know you met Jesus See, enables you to endure suffering. This is going to be a big thing in Revelation. We're going to talk about this a lot. But this is maybe the most astonishing part of the whole picture. Because when John turns to see the voice, you think, right, you're going to see Jesus. But what does he see? The first thing that he sees is these golden lampstands that the end of Revelation tells you is the churches. It's the seven churches, seven it's going, to, it's going to be big in Revelation. It's the number of completion. It doesn't mean there's literally seven, that there'll be seven letters. That encapsulates all the people of God. So what we are told is right there in the middle of the lampstands, right there in the middle of the churches, in the middle of his people, is Jesus. It's almost so in the midst of is Jesus with his people that you don't see him at first. You see the lampstands. But he's there. These are churches who are suffering, who are being beheaded, who are in prison. And where is Jesus? He is right there with them, right there amidst them. That's where he is. And you know they were, you know they were going, this can't be right. There's no way this is right. Jesus must be gone. And Revelation is saying things are not as they seem. He's right there. He's with you. And listen, I don't. There's a lot of you I haven't even met yet. So I don't know all your stories. I know some of them decently well. I don't know all the sin, all the darkness, all the suffering that many of you have gone through. But I know it's hard. And I know this. You start thinking, like, where's Jesus in all this? Where's Jesus in my depression when my friends are dying? Why won't he help me? And I'm telling you, he's right here. He's here. He's amidst you. Listen, I'm going to quote my friend Ricky Jones here and help me with a lot of this. And I'm going to say this gently. But a lot of you are bitter and you're angry at God right now. And that's okay. He can handle it. He really can. He can handle your questions. Move towards him. But you're confused and you're bitter at Jesus for him not coming through on a promise that he never made. He has never promised to isolate you from suffering or to take you out of it. Instead, he has promised to be with you in it. That's his promise. And I want to kind of finish by reading a testimonial from an honest person. I actually tweeted this out the other day. Follow me on Twitter. Um, who, is, uh, who dealt with depression for a long time. I just loved it. She was so honest. 
Here's her last paragraph. She said this, as I'm writing this, I realize how difficult it is to sum up depression in a short blog post. It's a story that goes on. It's still being written. Depression is a battle that I fight every day. Some days are harder than others. Medication is one weapon against it. But my community, my church, my friends and family exercise, scripture, the Holy Spirit, prayer, the gospel. The Lord's given me all these things to wage war against not only the disease, but the sin it lends itself to. Other young women I've talked to who struggle with depression have asked me what medication did for me. It does not fix the problem, I'm quick to say. I explained the dark pit I'd fallen into, alone, frightened, with a tiny pinprick of light at the top. If you've been depressed, you know that's how it feels. Going on medication was like striking a match in that pit. And I look around, I realize I was not alone. The light shone from that match onto countless faces around me that had been there the whole time. The darkness had blotted them all out of sight, but in reality, the people I loved had been in that pit with me. I just couldn't see them. And they were there, reaching out to me. And here's what I want you to hear. And you know who else was in that pit with me the whole time? Jesus. And it was he who stood closest to me and who took me by my hand and showed me the way out. I just want to end tonight with this. What Revelation 1 shows you is that the real Jesus, the Son of God, can be anywhere that he wants. He can have anything that he wants. And he says, I want to be with you, with my people. I want to be with you as you walk through darkness, through this dark, painful, and broken world. I don't know, I don't know why he hasn't stopped the depression. I don't know why my friend committed suicide when I was 23. I don't know why that sin won't go away that you, that you hate and you, you keep struggling with it. I don't know why you're lonely. But Jesus is with you. He doesn't explain the suffering necessarily, but he promises to share in it and walk with you through it. He's right here. And the strong Jesus He's no longer using his power and his purity and his judgment against you, if you know him. He's using it with and for you. And he's not leaving. He's not leaving. That's what I want you to hear me say. Jesus is standing with you in the evil done to you. He's standing with you in your sin. He's standing with you in your depression and your darkness. And he's never going to leave you until one day, One day, and we'll see this by the end of Revelation, it's all gone. And you'll see him as he is. And here's the great thing. Your apprehension of the reality of Jesus being with you, it doesn't change the reality. He just is. He just is. He just is holding on to you. Even if you feel like you've lost complete grip on him. So the rest of Revelation is going to show you how Jesus being with you changes everything. Do you know the real Jesus? The one of power and purity and tremendous grace. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, would you um, be so kind to, that we'll dare to ask uh, what we just read about. Lord, would your spirit uh, do what, what, what the Holy Spirit loves to do? Bring us into reality itself and help us to see Jesus the one who loves to show mercy, the one who loves to show grace. Will we meet him now so that we can fear not?
and walk with him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.